Hey, what's up? Welcome to the JJ Reddick Podcast. I have a great show for you today. I'm really excited to have on one of my favorite guys, Seth Myers from The Late Show with Seth Myers. I can re I can rewatch my writing, and I can rewatch things I did on Update with other people. For example, I can watch something that Amy and I did together, or I can watch Bill Hader, Stefan, and I together. But I don't like watching just myself. I feel like that's only I'll only see things I wish I did differently, and that will take away my appreciation for how it went. We talk about giving birth in an apartment building lobby, doing late night television in the age of Trump, and which of his rivals in late night television he pays attention to. We hope you enjoy. Hey, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. I have a really great conversation with Seth Myers coming up. Before I get to Seth, um, first of all, I just wanted to to thank Brian Colangelo, thank BC for bringing me aboard last summer. Um, it's really unfortunate how everything turned out in Philadelphia, um, but uh, you know I'm, I'm I'm grateful to him and and sad to see that you know his his time in Philly ended the way it did. Um, this is a really like weird uh, sort of period of time from the time the season ends until July first. Um, you know, really you're trying to do as much as you can to actually take your mind off basketball. But before you can do that, uh, you've got to watch two more rounds of playoffs. And that can be incredibly frustrating at times um, because you want to still be playing. Um, and then on non-game days, when you don't have to watch, uh, you're trying to do everything you can to not think about basketball and it just keeps popping back into your head. I'm not going to lie, watching the Warriors celebrate after game four, um, I had a lot of mixed emotions, uh, a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of anger, um, some regret. Uh, but I, overall, like, I, I, I just, you know, again, it, I keep coming back to wanting to experience that feeling that they had. Um, it's, it's unbridled joy, and I want to know what that's like. Um, in the meantime, I've got to wait a, a few more weeks until uh, free agency starts on, on July 1st. Um, I'm gonna take a little vacation uh, in about nine days to Italy and then come back and uh, figure out where I'm playing basketball next year. All right, without further ado, here's my conversation with Seth Myers. I noticed the Pittsburgh mug, so I'm really confused about this. Yeah. So you're a Red Sox fan. I am. And you're also a Steelers fan. I am. And kind of a Celtics fan. And I'm a kind Celtics of a, fan. You yeah. are a Celtics fan. Yeah. And then a kind of a Penguins fan. Not really. I'm not really okay. a hockey fan. My dad's from Pittsburgh, and so always a Steeler fan. Never dabbled with the Patriots at all. But then a few years ago, the Pirates started actually being a decent team. And so, so you I, hopped on the bandwagon. I hopped on the bandwagon as quickly as I could. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Totally um, admitting to it. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> this is totally an aside. But um, so like oh, this was probably two years ago. Mm -hmm. I, was, I used to post all these videos of my son uh -huh. on, uh, on Instagram. And my sis, uh, sister-in-law is a publicist. All right. And so she said to me, 
yeah, Seth Meyers, like, he saw, somebody from his team saw these videos and they think they're funny. They want to have you on the show. Is this true or not? It doesn't, there's no I, ring of truth to it. I, I thought so. <laughs> yeah, I apologize. And I'm sure they were funny and charming. But, and I also want to say that, you know, oh, you'd be welcome to come on this show. No, but it won't no, no. be because your son is doing funny things. We want to have you on for oh, you, man. JJ. I need something to promote. Yeah. I need a book. Uh, well, no. show. Let's. I. I think we do live in an era where having a podcast is enough to go onto a talk show. Okay. We've had guests on our show that are that only have podcasts. Really? Yeah. Like, give me an example. Pod Save America guys. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, yeah. Sorry, guys, I, I gotta open. Awesome. I know I'm opening <laughs> with the big one. Yeah. So, <laughs> so like, that, so like the best podcast there is. Yeah, like yeah. you know the biggest podcast. You know, so like if you go to the podcast list, if number one. Yeah. That what those guys. Yeah. To see myself on the charts, I have to go. To the specific category. Oh, you have to right. Yeah, yeah. like sports and recreation. <laughs> I don't get the. I don't get. How the are top you? In the, are you doing well in the sports and recreation category? You depending on the guest. Okay. So, interesting. Oh, you're guest dependent. Yeah. So, like, you know, if I have, if I have someone that maybe some people haven't heard of, like, you know, I'll be like 38. You know, interesting. But then if I have like, well, I had Kyrie Irving on. Yeah, and I we, listened to that one. We talked about the flat Earth theory yes. and, um, dino- and dinosaurs, and that was number one. Yeah. Oh, interesting. That <laughs> yeah. was really good. Yeah. I also uh, was really. You guys had a very interesting history. I didn't realize that you. You obviously you had experience. You went through similar experiences, yeah. which I found very interesting as well. Yeah, we were part of a, um, a secret society. Yeah. At Duke, <laughs> the flat That's Earth. That's all I can say. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> um, I gotta I gotta open with the the birthing story. Mm. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you very much. Yeah, congratulations. Um, I feel like a lot of people have heard this story, but it's just yeah. too fantastic. It's really good. Not to share if you're okay with it. I'm happy to share it, yeah. Okay. I mean, the the long and the short of it is that my wife delivered our second son in the lobby of our building. Our first son came really quickly, and so quickly that we thought he was going to be delivered in the Uber on the way to the airport. That's not the airport, the uh, hospital. So we were really... I only say that because we were dialed in. We didn't want the same thing to happen again. We wanted to get there with plenty of time. But there really just wasn't any warning that he was coming until he was coming. My wife still claims she just had one long contraction. And once it started, we got in the elevator, and I dialed up an Uber, and we got downstairs, and she just said that she— and, you know, obviously she knows her body better than anyone. She said, no, it's it's here. The baby is here right now. And I looked down, and it— did look she was wearing sweatpants and it it definitely looked there was a second person in her sweatpants uh, and and mercifully it just happened really quickly and mercifully it was our second because the first yeah. one you just no matter what the location is it's so mind-blowing and so yeah. at least i knew it was supposed to look like that the baby was supposed to look that weird right lobby or, or anywhere else but um yeah it was nuts it's, uh, you know, because the thing about lobbies is they're common areas. You know, they're not, it's not like. <laughs> no, I live in yeah, a building. Yeah, I know. exactly. Yeah, you know, because, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, in the hospital, uh, when you get there, they put you in a room. They don't just have you in the lobby. So, yeah. Uh, and God bless, we had, you know, these two doormen that did an incredible job of sort of ushering people, or at least not even ushering. There was really nowhere for people to go except to wait for the whole thing to finish. Because it's a very small lobby. I think people are picturing a bigger lobby than it is. And, uh, and you know, again, you don't really think uh, when you're my wife, I don't think you think of, like, which way to aim your legs. But she was definitely pointing them towards the <laughs> elevators. So had somebody come out, it would have been a, oh, yeah, a, a yeah. moment to remember. Yeah. yeah. 
I feel like you can either downplay this sort of thing, you know, and and sort of after the fact say how calm and how collected you were. Yeah. Like what was sort of the emotional range that you were going through and your wife too? Like looking back now. Looking back, I think my wife, and she would say this, was so relieved she wasn't. Because, again, if she'd gotten the Uber, it would have been so much worse than where she was. Because, obviously, the reality was, it was, yeah. when we got in an ambulance an hour later. At least you knew the doorman. The we Uber, knew the, the doorman. The Uber driver. Right, yeah. <laughs> and then there's no way. You have a baby in an Uber, that's a one-star ride. That brings down your average. <laughs> and then it's hard not to blame the kid for the rest of his life. Yeah. But, so she, I think, was just relieved to be in a situation where she wasn't like in a bumpy car and my wife is was incredibly calm and once she had him I think just her motherly instincts kicked in and she picked him up and put him on his chest and he was crying and doing all the things that you know a baby's supposed to do if he's okay I think I was all right I don't think I was uh the ice man my mother-in-law went down and tried to pull security cam footage because she thought oh my god they would have security cam and i in my head, I knew that the security cam footage wouldn't match up with how cool and collected I thought I was, so I was really relieved to find out that yeah. it didn't exist because I did. You know, I called nine one one, which I felt like that was looking back. I think that was the right call, but the baby came so quickly that it really was by the end of the call. Yeah, it was uh, he was delivered. The other problem was the amount of. Uh, just like real masculinity that my son saw as quickly as he was born that was not me, but rather like firemen and police officers because when you call 911, those yeah. are the people who show up. So, um, you know, I think I was like the ninth most impressive man <laughs> my son met on his first day. <laughs> uh, he's he's two months old now, right? Yeah. Kind of, yeah. So, like, we have two boys as Oh, well. great. Yeah. What's your age gap between them? Exactly two years. Okay, great. They're, 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 um, that's exactly what we are. We we didn't have we don't have like a birthing story. It's crazy because my my first son was transverse breached. Oh, I'm not wow. sure exactly sure what that means, but he couldn't be birthed through the uh, you know yeah. So we scheduled a C section, and then my second son had the exact same due date as my first son. So we didn't want them to have the same birthday. Uh huh. So we just scheduled a C section again two days prior. So they're like, you know, August twenty sixth, August August twenty fourth. Wow. And um, saints like. Apart, together, they're little devils. Interesting. How's it? How how is two for you? It two's great. I mean, I came from two. Uh, my brother and I. So my parents figured this out because I did not make the connection. My parents figured out that my sons and my brother and I are exactly two years and eleven days apart, which is crazy. That's nice. We are best friends, my brother and I. So I'm hopeful. And I didn't care what the first one was, but I did selfishly want my oldest to have a younger brother just like I did. But, yeah, so far, two's great. You know, the second one doesn't make it as exponentially harder as I've been told that it did. Now, with that said, he's not moving around much yet. I feel like that's where I think the level of difficulty. Once they can go in different directions, yeah, that's problematic. How old are yours? Uh, four and two. Okay, gotcha. So you're there yeah. now. Yeah. That they can um, scatter? They do scatter, although— it's like one of it's it's so weird, man. It's like we have <clears throat> we have a lot of stuff. Not a lot of stuff. We have stuff in our house. You know, they mm-hmm. have their own toys. One of them has the four year old has a lot more toys. Um, we have like the same amount of utensils. Like we have multiple spoons, <laughs> yeah, multiple cereal bowls. Like we have all the things they could ever need, and they only want to fight over one specific item all the time. It's yeah. all day long. And this happened. This started happening like three months ago, and it's. Like we're at the, the the sort of the peak in fighting right now. Yeah, it's uh, it's frustrating. That it's frustrating. that would I can see how that's not something to look forward to. Is them actually yeah, arguing fine. with one another? 
It's fine. I'm Did always, they, um, can I ask, was the yeah. older one excited about the younger one from the beginning? Uh, he was. He was. There, we have this great photo, um, though, when my wife was pregnant. She did, like, her pregnancy photos, and Knox, my oldest, was in a couple of them. And so there was this picture of her belly and him standing next to it. And he's just got this, like, oh, that's quizzical, like, what the fuck is about to happen <laughs> look on his face. Um, we waited a few days to bring him to the hospital and, you know. Gotcha. Um, so m- we call my youngest Squishy. <laughs> and so the four-year-old is just like, oh, Squishy, stop it. <laughs> it's just like all day long. It's all we hear all day long. Do they squishy. share a bedroom? No, okay. they don't. We So we're in a rental right now. We're renovating our apartment. In the renovated apartment, we're building the bunk beds. Good. And they're going to share. That's and I think that's healthy. In New York City especially, it's healthy. Yes. It's healthy. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> it's healthy and essential. Yeah. Um, we actually have an extra bedroom, but now we're like, they, they've got to gut it out. They've got to get it out. All right, good. Um, I'm always I'm always interested in sort of the quirks of people. And okay. uh, you're, you're like the only late night. Uh, host that uh, doesn't deliver his opening monologue standing up. Yeah, and I'm curious about that. Well, it I it really it's not that complicated in that I came from a desk job yeah. at SNL, and then when I started this one, I felt it was really important to show everybody that I wasn't just going to be doing the same thing, and so I spent 18 months trying to do a thing that I wasn't as good at as the yeah. other thing. I was I did, and then I just had this realization of why am I trying to? It's that interesting, you know. As you get older, it's okay to only be good at the things you're good at. <laughs> like there comes an age yeah. where you can't, you're not yeah. expected, or you shouldn't expect yourself to be able to develop another skill. Right. Um, and I don't think I again, I don't think I was terrible at being a, doing a standing monologue, but I felt so much more comfortable when I would sit down behind the desk. I used to feel like my own warm up comedian, if that makes sense, and that. I was loosening up the crowd doing a monologue, sure. and then when I sat down, it felt like the show started. Now it feels like the show starts right away, which is a lot nicer for me because obviously you only have a limited amount of time, and now I don't feel like I'm wasting any of it. I can relate to this actually. How do? You, what is the no, uh, parallel for you? There is a parallel. Um, I was thinking about this as you said this because I remember like when I was you know two three years in the league, like I would work on these parts of my yeah. game that just they were never going to be my strengths. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to be a post-ISO player. Mm-hmm. That's not who I am. I'm comfortable coming right. off dribble handoffs and screens. That's that's yep. who I am. And you get older and you accept that. And I don't spend a single minute during the summer when I work on my game on post-ISOs. But it's important to know that you're also then not, you're then using that time that you would have used on post-ISOs to refine the skills that you're sure. good at. Because you obviously have to keep doing that. And, and so it wasn't, a, I think that was the thing. I, I realized that I wasn't being lazy not trying to do another thing. Yeah. I, I was just being smarter to spend the exact same amount of time to get better at the things I'm good at. Was, was there any pushback on that? None. And None. I will admit that there was, if there was any pushback, it was everybody came up t- to this conclusion before I did. Yeah. There were other people who said, hey, you should start at the desk. And I took offense to that and yeah. was stubborn. And it took me a while you know, I think it was healthier than in the end. I came to the decision on my own, but and then people were polite and said, "Oh, that's a great idea," even though they told me six months ago. But um, yeah, it was. I was the, sort of the last to know. I feel like if I switch teams, and then like three months in, they were like, "Yeah, we're going to stop running that play for him." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, exactly. yeah, we're just going to go pin down. <laughs> we're going to go pin down. Yeah. Um, are you at this point in in your illustrious career? 
Um, do you do you have nerves before a show? I don't because you, talk, you talked about com- like a comfort level. Yeah. Is it is it? Nerves? I don't have nerves before this show because it's so. You get to do it so often that you get a level of control that I haven't had at any other jobs. Yeah. And, you know, unlike SNL, where the host every week changes the DNA of what the show is and what the challenges are. Yeah. And sometimes a host comes in and there's nothing you've ever done before that prepares you for them. Here, I get to be the host every night. So the guests obviously change the show a little bit, but it all kind of runs through me. And so it's hard for it to get out of hand. So, like, my level of nerves is not. Uh, very high. I will say when I do something like host the Golden Globes, that is full butterflies. Yeah. Even yeah. though I've hosted other things, that yeah. was a night. And by the way, I like, and one of the reasons I do things like that is I like feeling nervous in the way that you feel when you first started doing this for a living. Yeah. You just get out of your comfort zone. Yeah. I feel like it. And that's it, sort of the juice that we're all sort of after, isn't it? Yeah. And it's weird yeah. because, you know, there's, and I think there's a different juice that comes from consistency, but there is, you know, I feel as though being at SNL was fully, that was a junkies high, whereas this is like just being, um, like, a, like drinking good wine every night and getting a little bust. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was street drugs. SNL was a street drugs high, and this is. Because uh, you didn't know what. He just sort of did. the reaction, the outcome. It, people, it, it's 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 organic. The yeah. improv. Is, well, is, it wasn't. There's not like you know that again. That's a whole different thing. You know, when, yeah. the beginning of my career before I was on television, improvising that yeah. had a real thrill to it because yeah. there was no, you know, the the the, the difference with improv is there was no preparation, so the stakes were a little bit lower sure, in that you sure. didn't work on something that somebody could then tear apart. Whereas at SNL, I mean, the biggest difference with SNL, SNL is you do one show a week, and then you and all your friends go to a party till 6 in the morning, and you lose your Sunday. But because there's this giant party at the end of the week, you, in your head, it's hard not to think it wasn't a big deal because there was a huge party. You know, we don't go, we don't have party. Once you have a late night talk show, there's almost no parties. Like, you have to do something like the Golden Globes to have a party. <laughs> um, you started at SNL as a writer, right? You didn't... I actually was a cast member who then did so much writing, they made me a writer. If that makes okay. sense. Yeah, that I got hired as that a doesn't. cast member. Okay, so you got hired as a cast member. This yeah. was 2001? Yes. Okay. And you did that with before as a writer for how long? So I was, uh, I think, five years as okay. just a cast member, but yeah. not a good cast member. I think that if they looked back, they would have said, oh, we should have hired him as a writer. But we'd hired him as a cast member. I was a good enough writer that I think that's what kept me employed there. And then I was lucky enough, I you know, I think we all need those breaks of some, an opening happening that you yeah. were suited for. But when Tina Fey left to go do 30 Rock, they needed a head writer. And, and so that's when I officially joined the writing staff. The, the life of a writer. Yeah. It's a grind? It's a grind. I mean... Do you have empathy for, like, do you have empathy for writers? Do you have empathy for people on your staff? I have less empathy for them. (laughs) (laughs) They're so, so, I'm so, I just think I'm great to work for. No. (laughs) I I do have empathy for writers. I have empathy for, you know, particularly our monologue writers who generate so much material. Yeah. And so little of it gets used. There's such a low yield of what monologue jokes that are written to monologue jokes that are used. You know, I have empathy for 
you know, Sal Gentile who writes a closer look three times a week. Like that, I have empathy for how much cable news he has to watch yeah. to piece that together. And then, you know, I have empathy for anyone who is working at a late night talk show, the people who write the sketches for this show. Um, there's so many shows now, and there's also been so many shows over the last 50 years, and trying to come up with things that are new and, and feel fresh, I think, is a really hard job. And, you know, the... The, I do, I just by nature, write less now at this job than I did at SNL, where I was head writer. And I am, but I, in general, I'm a happier, healthier person because I don't have to go through that writing grind. There, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about. Because there's, there's like, a, there's an inherent pressure as a writer, especially if there's other writers on the show. Yeah. To get your jokes on the show. Yes, there's a finite amount of space. Yeah. yeah. And also it's, you know, there's... You don't write it and turn it into someone who then goes behind a closed door and makes a decision and comes out and tells you what happened. At SNL, you have this table read. And so not only are you desperate to succeed rather than fail, it's very public amongst your peers how it goes. And it's not, it's obvious how it's going. <laughs> you know, that's the problem with writing comedy versus writing drama. Yeah. Good drama, the audience makes the same noises that they do during bad drama, but with comedy. His silence is a very, you know, troubling and an obvious uh, thing to hear. So what is then the key to delivering a joke, to taking it from the writing room? I've always, this is, I, I'm, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of yours. Oh, but, that's but very kind of you. I love, I love your delivery. I mean, there's just something about it uh, that, that uh, is just awesome to me. And so I'm, I'm, what is the key to taking sort of a joke that, you know, 14, 15 people can laugh at? And then delivering that on camera where it resonates with a, with a wider audience. Well, I'm, I'm loath to parallel what you and I do because I think uh, what you do has a much higher level of difficulty. <laughs> but I will say, I think the one thing that would be in common is I when I'm doing it, I'm not thinking about it at all, if that makes sense. That I, I feel there's some... You know, muscle memory is a weird way to put it because I, mm -hmm. you know, the muscles are very limited to my head yeah. <laughs> and my face. But I'm, I think that I've told enough jokes over my career and developed a delivery that the nice thing about it is how little I have to think about it. And when I first started doing SNL, when I first started doing Weekend Update, I was very aware of how much I was thinking about how to say a joke, and then also assessing how I thought it went after I told it. And there was. I remember Lauren Michaels used to always point out, you have to, when Saturday comes around, you have to stop being a writer and stop assessing how it's going and just live in the moment of telling the jokes and not caring how they go. Because the audience is aware. If you feel like a joke bombed and you take it personally, they can read it on your face and now they're thinking about that one, your next joke. So you yeah. kind of just have to have a short memory and just move on. Because it, whether it's a monologue or we can update, yeah. you're, it's sequential. Like yeah. you're delivering one joke after another. It's like a game. Yeah. You're shooting a shot, coming down the court, shooting again. And so you have you have to have sort of a short memory to just move on to the next shot. Absolutely. And you have to not completely change how you if the one doesn't work, you can't change your delivery and try to be a different kind of comedian for the next <laughs> joke. You can't sort of cycle through different personas. Yeah. You have to uh um Oh, I'm trying. I'm trying so hard not to say trust the process right now, but that really is the perfect explanation for, for what I'm saying. But I, I came to it honestly, you guys. I don't think yeah. anyone listening would say that I forced that in here. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so 
there, I will say this. When I go out and do stand-up, which is a little different because that's a case where you have an hour that you've prepared and you've done in front of different people, there are nights where you can start a stand-up show and realize, uh, unlike this, where you're both performing for the people in the house and the people at home, and the people at home is a much larger audience than the people in the house. You know, when you do stand-up, it's really just about those people in that theater. And some yeah. nights you realize, oh, they're this kind of audience. And so right. I can make a subtle adjustment to them that will make this more enjoyable for this particular performance of these jokes that if they were a different kind of audience, I would maybe do differently. So that's the only way I feel like to adjust on the fly. With something like the Golden Globes, I was very curious to see how they would react to jokes because it was sort of one of the, I think it was the first award show after the Me Too movement happened. And so there was, yeah. you know, there was yeah. sort of dangerous territory. Maybe not dangerous, but uh, I was curious to see how they'd respond. Now, I should say, if they'd responded badly, it wasn't like I had a plan B. Right. You write the jokes and they're all, it's too late. They're on the teleprompter. But uh, so what were it, you, what were you more nervous for? The Golden Globes or I know you've done a, cu a couple of these yeah. now or the White House Correspondents Dinner? Because you, you did that once? Once, yeah, yeah. 2011. I yeah. think probably that just because 2011 was like seven years younger and, and a little <laughs> bit greener. Yeah. And Obama also got to tell jokes, and he was really good at them. Yeah. Like, that was the part that was, I think, the most nerve-wracking about that. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I <clears throat> You mentioned the Me Too movement, so you're, you're cognizant of the fact as you're getting ready to host the Globes uh, that— People are a little on edge. Sure. Are people getting too offended now? Like, what is the line that you have to walk on well, a nightly basis telling yeah. a joke? Well, I, you know, we talk about our own personal taste here all the time. Yeah. And we have a nice, diverse writing staff where people have the freedom to speak up and say, I'm afraid this is going to be taken this way when you mean it to be taken the other and so ultimately, I'm not, you know, I think there are, look, I think both sides of the political spectrum have people who are going to take offense for the joy of being offended. I think that there is a, you know, something is yeah. released, an endorphin is released uh, for certain people to be offended and uh, to be outraged. And uh, sometimes, look, sometimes I think offense is uh, done in good faith. Yeah. And other times I think people say they're offended in bad faith. Ultimately, I think if you approach it with, you know, I, I do, you know, I think a lot of people uh, who don't agree with me on issues will, will think this is nonsense, but we do try very hard to be decent on this show. Um, you know, there are some people, obviously, we think deserve less decency than others, but uh, if we feel like we have the receipts to we'll, show. We'll get to Trump. <laughs> we'll, get to him, but, uh, well, not just him. Um, but, yeah, so that uh, – and uh, – but ultimately, you know, I feel like if you if you do the work in a way that uh, you feel has integrity, you can you can ultimately weather people saying they're offended by it. How much do you hang out on Twitter? Uh, enough, enough. I would like to hang out less. I took it off my phone this summer. Yeah. But then when I'm sitting at my computer, which is most of my day, it's hard not to go there. Yeah. But I don't look. I don't look at at replies that much. I don't. No. You know. So I'm not like. Yeah. I'm not engaging with what people are saying sure. to me as much as I'm using it as a newsfeed. Yeah. Similar, but it, yeah. it just it's inevitable that you just come across sort of those, um, you know, things live on Twitter for 24 hours or sometimes a month, but they live on Twitter, and it's 
people, I think, tend to re- overreact to things. Well, I think there is that there's a lot of the world that's not on Twitter or engaging. Yeah, it's an insular same. world. I, yeah. I, I, I totally. And we're also building our own insular worlds based on our tastes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, based on, you know, if you get on Twitter and, and for someone like me, it's I started following, you know, sports writers I liked and political writers I liked and people who wrote about comic books I liked and then they liked other people. And so then I followed that out. And now there are things that are happening on Twitter that I think everybody's talking about. And the reality is it, none of it's turning up on other people's <laughs> Twitter feeds. <laughs> But I just realized, I, you know, and it's, I don't want to throw Twitter under the bus because I ultimately think humanity has been the problem behind it. But I more often than not, I just— wait, wait, what? Well, I mean, like, Twitter, I feel like, oh, Twitter's— Humanity's the, the problem. Twitter's the worst. People are like, okay. Twitter's the worst. But, like, humans is what made it the worst. <laughs> like, if we were a different species, Twitter would be fine. It's just that we took it and made it this awful place. I mean— uh, it's not a. It's a human choice to say something awful on Twitter. Like Twitter just said, like, oh, we just wanted to give you guys a platform to talk to each other. But um, I just realized ninety percent of the time, the things I read on Twitter are not making me happier. Right. So, and that's and it's people. You know, and again, we live in an era where obviously a lot of the people I follow who write about the news, even reporters who don't have, aren't opinion yeah. writers, they're just people who tell you like this happened today. Um, you know, more often than not, what happened today does not make me, put me in a better mood. So that's why I'm 